0: Welcome to the Freeman Law Project, a podcast with thought-provoking insights on tax and white-collar matters, the art of trial lawyering, and the most influential legal issues of the day.
1: Brought to you by
0: some of the nation's top legal minds. And now, your host. Well, hello welcome to another episode of the Freeman Law Project. I'm your host, Jason Freeman. Along with me again today is Matthew Roberts. Matt, thanks for joining us.
1: Jason, great to be here.
0: As many of you know, Matt and I bring a weekly installment, which we refer to as the tax court in brief. We go through and summarize the past week's tax court opinions, at least the substantive opinions that the tax court releases. There were quite a few of them this week. We're gonna boil it down to those that are the most relevant and the most need to know. Matt, I'm gonna go ahead and get started with one that continues a theme that we've been seeing for weeks on end. It's another charitable contribution case involving conservation easements. As many of you know, conservation easements have been one of the top enforcement priorities for the IRS for years now. We're seeing a lot of these cases that are making their way up to the tax court and, and other courts. There are, with the tax court in particular, quite a few of them boiling up in the pipeline. And Matt recently issued an interesting blog post that dealt with a a settlement program that the IRS recently announced or or alluded to in the conservation easement realm, uh, which we talked about a little bit on the last program. This case that we're dealing with from this past week is is titled or captioned Inglewood Place LLC. And the, the opinion is from Judge Lauber there were several, I, I want to say four, of the carbon copy opinions issued by this on the same day by the same judge with the same basic facts, same basic law, same basic rationale, literally carbon copy opinions, virtually just changing the name of the taxpayer or LLC and the tax matters partner on these cases. So, I'm going to hit one. If you see one, you saw them all. Th- this case involved Inglewood donating a conservation easement that covered about 130 acres of a tract of Georgia land. Now, it was contributed to a qualified organization, which is a key component or requirement under the statute to entitle the taxpayer to a deduction and the deed recited that the conservation purposes and that it would generally prohibit commercial or residential development, though it did leave some rights to Inglewood to conduct commercial agriculture and timber harvesting activities within the conserved area. Now, there's an important, important element of the deed, and this kind of boils down to the issue in the case that the deed recognized the possibility that the easement might at some point in the future be extinguished particularly following a judicial extinguishment now this is important because the law here to allow a taxpayer to obtain a deduction generally requires and this is outside of the conservation easement context it generally requires that a taxpayer seeking a charitable deduction have donated all of the interest or an entire interest in the property that's donated. But there's a special exception for what are known as qualified conservation contributions. And this is a carve out that Congress, let's, let's recognize, Congress specifically allowed for to incentivize contributions of conservation easement rights. The regulations dealing with these donations of conservation easements required that in order to be a qualified conservation contribution, the conservation purpose behind the easement has to be, quote unquote, protected in perpetuity. So this is the perpetuity Protection right that has has to be embedded or part and parcel of the uh, of the contribution. Now the regulations also recognize that it may not be realistic to have such a requirement where there are things outside of the taxpayers or the donny organizations control that may result in a, you know, in relinquishment or extinguishment of the conservation easement. And that's where the regulations deep down in the, you know, in the annals of the uh, of the treasury regulations that deal with conservation easements. That's where there is a provision that deals with extinguishment due to judicial proceedings. And importantly, That carries some language requiring to the T that in that instance, the charitable donee following a forced judicial sale has to receive their proportionate share of the proceeds and then be required to use those proceeds in a manner consistent with the original gift. And so, again, they've got to receive their proportionate share of the fair market value. Of uh, of the easement or the property interest at the time that the judicial sale is is fo- forced and, and happens, well going back to the actual deeds in this case, and, and the same deed, again, in all of the cases that were issued this past week, the, the same language was set out in each of the, each of the respective deeds. But the deed here follows provides that after a judicial extinguishment, the, the proceeds paragraph of the deed would control what, is, what the grantee organization is entitled to from those, from those future proceeds. And it, it curiously provides here that they would basically be entitled to their share of the fair market value. Of the unencumbered conservation easement minus and this is a parenthetical that really that really dooms their entire case minus any increase in the value after the date that the easement was granted that is attributable to improvements so for example improvements that may be made by inglewood or that or the grantor and so ultimately here the tax court finds that because of this language, because of this scaling back of what the DONE organization would be entitled to, it runs afoul of the protected and perpetuity provision of the conservation easement regulations that are set out by the U.S. Treasury Department and, and the IRS. And so therefore... The deduction fails, and what follows is penalties and and whatnot. But ultimately, the the conservation easement deduction fails, and like dominoes, the the court churned out several additional opinions that just knocked over these charitable deductions that were taken by taxpayers. And so, Matt, it's you know, you and I are seeing this in practice, seeing the IRS, you know, really pushing back in this area. You know, at, at some point, in some cases, they, they push back too far. It's kind of the, the knee-jerk reaction. And, and at some point, the pushback hits into, you know, territory where perhaps they shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be pushing back. But right now, you know, this is what we're seeing, the IRS challenging these across the board. And here of late, at least, they have certainly had some success in the tax court. What we are seeing, you know, with that success is the cases have virtually all been about technical requirements under the regs and language in deeds and whether or not these are satisfied, not so much questions of appraisals with respect to the, you know, the valuation of the deductions. And at least with what we're seeing, that, that appears to be kind of the continuing trend from these tax court cases addressing this
1: and And Jason,'ll I'll just add, I think the government's message is getting out uh, the message that they that they at least want to to kind of start getting out there. I've actually been on calls with people that have asked me, well, or are, are cons- can we even do conservation easements and take deductions for it? And the answer, of course, is yes, there those are permissible. There's a specific code, and there are regs that allow you to do it, provided that you meet all these technicalities, et etc, that the government is going after. It makes it interesting because these are even more opinions that the government's probably going to use to kind of push taxpayers who have pending cases in the tax court to fall under this new uh, settlement program that that the government has said they will only keep open for a limited amount of time. Um, I think it just makes it that much more important um, for those taxpayers that do receive these settlement letters or potential settlement letters and it may have the option to do it, to really get a, a thorough scrub by by a tax professional to make sure these technicalities have been met. Where are the weaknesses? Where are the strengths in your case to kind of figure out, it, you know, is it worth it to, to sit there and go ahead and take the government's offer? Would you agree?
0: I absolutely agree. And Matt, you know, this is one of those very technical issues where, you know, as a as a taxpayer or as a professional, you know, that is that is involved, you've got to have a, you know, you've got to have an attorney with an eye that knows what they're doing in the conservation easement realm because these these regulations, I mean, as you can see, like we're we're diving down in a, you know, 20-30 page opinion that is basically about one provision embedded in the regulations you know in this case dealing with the perpetuity requirement there are it's just a very you know it's it's a very nuanced area you know the point i would make here i guess is with these cases that are that are coming out and, and they have been a, a bad line of cases which always set precedent or at least the appearance of precedent it's interesting the way You know, I think a lot of listeners may not realize the way the government goes about strategically building its line of precedent. You know, as the government, you look at any given case and you recognize that this case. Hey, this case has the potential to have ramifications across the entire system. And if I, as the government administrating these cases, if I pick and choose those those cases with the worst facts and line those cases up initially. To get that line of precedent going and kind of get that trend or the wind at my back in these cases, I'll, I'll not only set helpful precedent that I can use to influence courts, you know, and decision makers in the future, or taxpayers who are weighing their risks in, in litigating, but I'll also have a general deterrent effect and an effect where you know word of these these cases gets out. Gets you know interpreted and and has an impact in in slowing down you know kind of this this cottage industry that they believe exists in this in this area and uh, you know not not speaking to these cases necessarily specifically but you know that is kind of the way the government goes about in any given context developing the the body of law behind it and these cases, you know, are presumably cases that they have wanted to fall in, in line time-wise. And so I guess we're, we're seeing the government take the fruits of that. And now we're seeing this, you know, the program that you, that you mentioned and that we talked about before is kind of the next step, I think, to, to try to take a lot of these out of the, you know, a lot of these pending cases out of the pipeline and, and unburden the, the tax court and the, and the chief counsel attorney's
1: Excellent points. And I, and I, you know, there's a lot at stake in these cases um, or in most of them, I should say, particularly because you've got the potential 40% overvaluation penalty as, as kind of the government's hammer. Um, you know, if you want to proceed with trial that that that's kind of hanging over you. So that's on top of denying the, the conservation easement deduction in the first place. So a lot at stake in these cases.
0: Absolutely, Matt. Well, Matt, you want to try, uh, you want to take the next case, the
1: Simpson case? Sure. So th- this was Judge Buk, uh Simpson v. Commissioner, Tax Court Memo 2020-100. Um, this one was actually a pretty interesting case and, and has issues that probably affect a lot of our listeners. Um, Mr. Simpson was an executive uh, coach. He, he basically was a life coach type, type um, that was his job. Ms. Simpson was a teacher and also a school administrator at a nonprofit school. All of their children went to this nonprofit school, and I believe it was three or four of them um, all at one time. As a result of their uh, respective employments, they incurred expenses related to travel, meals, inter- entertainment, and some others. Um, the Simpsons also owned two businesses one was a C Corp Simpson Executive Coaching. And the other one was was called e-business advisory and consultation services. And that was characterized as a partnership for federal tax purposes. Um, Simpson Executive Coaching was kind of formed by uh, Mr. Simpson to, to help as kind of a side business in his life coaching uh, uh, trader business that he was he was doing. And then uh, EBACs was formed primarily to increase enrollment at the nonprofit school, and and that's important. We'll come to that in a minute. Um, The Simpsons, they claimed deductions for uh, the unreimbursed employee expenses they incurred, and they also uh, claimed deductions for unreimbursed partnership expenses related to EBACs. The IRS disallowed a lot of these expenses and they issued a notice of deficiency. Uh, The Simpsons timely filed a petition with the tax court and the IRS in an amended answer actually asserted uh, new issues. Uh, they raised new matters, increasing the deficiency uh, beyond what was originally asserted in the, in the original notice of deficiency that was issued to the taxpayers. And the reason that's important is Jason, as you know, it, it uh, shifts the burden of proof on the IRS on those matters that were not originally in the notice of deficiency. Um, and that'll also come into play, uh, uh, here in a minute. When we come back to that, you so, mean it
0: creates a, a fair playing
1: field. Yeah, I, pretty much. You know, this is one of the few times where the, the, the government is actually kind of on the defense and they have to come forward and kind of prove their case. Um, so, you know, it, it, we like those Jason. Uh, so on this, um, the, the IRS, and going along with what they have to prove for their, for their burden of production, their burden of proof, um, in this case, they had to show that either uh, the Simpsons were not ent- uh, entitled to the deductions as a matter of law, essentially, um, or that they didn't properly substantiate the deduction. So even though the burden of proof is on the IRS, they can still meet that burden of proof by pointing to the fact that the taxpayer doesn't have any type of uh, sufficient evidence to prove the expenses for which they're trying to claim. Um, Mr. Simpson, uh, the court found, was not entitled to his unreimbursed employee expenses because his employer that he worked for for the life coach business had a policy where it reimbursed in full any employee expenses. And Jason, we've had a couple of these cases and exam and even at the tax court where you know this is kind of uh, or can be uh, a, a fatal strike against claiming these expenses because if you can get the employer to pay them, the way the, the courts look at it is well, that's not a necessary expense under Section One Hundred and Sixty Two because it could have been paid for by the employer because they've got a policy that allows you to to get the uh, expense that way. So he ends up losing on that matter on on Miss Simpson. And her uh, claim for deductions, um, she ended up getting a partial win, mainly because of the burden of proof on the IRS, on these additional matters that they asserted in the answer. Um, she did lose on some of the others because, again, she, she didn't have any substantiation other than just her vague testimony that, well, I incurred, I think, around this much in travel expenses uh, or whatever it was in this opinion. So... Uh, at least a partial win in getting some of those deductions. Um, One of the interesting things with the unreimbursed partnership expenses, and this related to EBAC, um, a lot of these were travel expenses, uh, meals, entertainment, and some other stuff related to the Simpsons traveling. um, On behalf of the school and, and And like um, sporting events for their for their kids, and what their theory for the deduction was was, well, we're we're hoping to increase the enrollment of the nonprofit school, and one day we intend to take over and buy out this nonprofit school and and it'll be for profit in the future, and we'll end up making some money on it. And Jason, as you can probably guess, uh, you know that did not persuade the court. Um, and in fact, there there there's some other cases where similar arguments have been made, and it's pretty specific that no, it has to be that you're engaged in a trade or business, and it, it can't have any ancillary effects uh, towards a nonprofit. Um, you're not going to be able to get the deductions for that. So they ended up losing on those deductions as well.
0: Mm. The uh, you know the, the the concept of a trader business is one of those interesting concepts that you know the the phrase appears throughout the code maybe 150 plus times the Internal Revenue Code itself never actually defined and so it's one of those that's been developed through the case law but it's it's one of the requirements here it kind of gets to the heart of the issue you're you're talking about is well. Do, were these incurred you know were they incurred as part of a trader business was it specifically the taxpayer's trader business and you uh, know it was interesting here i noticed the court looked to 10th circuit law interpreting the concept of a trader business that that's not remarkable i guess that that's the golson rule that we has come up on the podcast multiple times um, because the case would be would be appealable to the 10th circuit. The, uh, the courts in looking to the 10th circuits uh, standard with respect to trader business, it looks like, you know, that is very key to the question of whether or not the activity was engaged in in an effort to, to earn a profit. And pretty much everywhere you look, that is at least a component of it. And, and you know, courts will also look to know, what was the level of activities, how continuous were they, Um, you know, how substantial were the activities to determine whether the facts and circumstances rise to the level of a a trade or business. Um, And one that's, you know, where there's a lot of uh, misconception, I think, is that the very act of being an employee can constitute a Trader business in and of itself.
1: Jason, I'll just chime in real quick. I, you know, you brought up an interesting point that this tax year was was 2014, and there's been some changes after that to where the taxpayers wouldn't be entitled to the deductions in, in, under the code at least now, and I think that goes until 2025. Uh, and what I'm ta- or referring to is miscellaneous itemized deductions. The taxpayer can no longer claim those, and I believe recently you you had some Commentary or a, a, a publication on that is that right?
0: You know, actually, I did. Matt and in, in Forbes had had authored a, an opinion piece dealing with what are known as miscellaneous itemized deductions. So they were actually, you know, that and for for anybody listening who doesn't know what the heck that means, you know, the, the paradigm example, Matt, is an employee's unreimbursed expenses. But there are a host of other examples like, you know, teachers uh, spending money on on, uh, classroom materials, tax preparation fees, investment advice, just just a host of things that fall into this category. And historically, they've been deductible by taxpayers, and this is where it gets a little complex, to the extent that they exceed 2% of the taxpayers' AGI, adjusted gross income don't really need to understand that to understand just kind of where they fit into context. And they've historically been deductible. They were during the year at issue in this case in the tax cuts and jobs act of 2017, Congress kind of unceremoniously, and and it really wasn't forecasted, uh, nixed these. And so going forward, 2018 forward, they're no longer deductible, you know, and researching that, to to write that piece, I you know, I went back and looked at the the budgetary scoring and there was about a $1.2 trillion price tag over the course of a decade that was attributed to to cutting this. So you know it it really becomes a a game of math and and that's the reason that they were they were cut. Um, But you know the the point of that article was really to make the point I guess that Congress enacted the cares Act back in in late march and and several acts since. and and the theme behind the cares Act you know PPP with the paycheck protection program was certainly part of it and and part of the theme insofar as tax amendments go was to was to infuse cash into the pockets of of taxpayers and employers. Uh, in order to, you know, allow employees to to continue on and to put employers into a position where they could, they had liquid cash to actually continue their workforces in place. And so like some of the changes you saw were you know, liberalizing the ability to go back and and take net operating losses against income or lessening the restrictions on deducting business interest you know and a a host of other changes in, in that sort of of that nature and the point of the article in forbes was really you know i haven't heard anyone today anyone discussing the concept of well if if the idea there was to use the employer as a middleman to basically get funds down into the hands of employees, why don't we we go back and either retroactively or going forward, bring back miscellaneous itemized deductions and take a a more direct approach, one that's got a pretty big dollar price tag on it, and get these funds into the hands of of employees through, through that method.
1: And Jason, these can be pretty significant deductions. I've had some clients, you know, 50000 a $100,000 that's been on uh, Schedule A, of course, subject to that 2% limitation. But for the, for the listeners that don't know, you know, you can get uh, mileage on your vehicle if it's being used for company purposes. Uh, travel, I've had some traveling salespeople that were required to kind of pay their own travel in certain instances, and that started adding up. So it's definitely a it seems like a much needed deduction, especially during these times for employees that are, are being kind of forced to incur on their dime the business's expense.
0: You know, they're, they're in a compromised situation because the, the job market is not great. So, I, you know, I think many people will find themselves feeling leveraged, right, that they, they are happy to have a job. And, uh, you know, you can certainly see situations where they may be willing to even incur greater costs than they would have just to keep that. It's one of those areas that, to me, I think it resonates with a lot of people once you once you really understand the kind of the fairness of the basic deduction and, and and who it's targeted to. And, you know, that looking at the paradigm example, I mean, that's, you know, it's 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 generally helpful to employees. So it's it's a deduction that makes a lot of sense to me um and you know this this case is one of those that you know probably tees up exactly the type of deduction you're generally you know the type of expenditure I guess you're typically talking about. Well Matt, on to the next one? Yep. All right, so this this next case, Dodson v Commissioner, Tax Court Memo 2020-106. This case involved a taxpayer who sought review under Section sixty three thirty uh, for an IRS determination that the taxpayer was not eligible for an installment agreement? Now, this taxpayer had gone up the up the chain through IRS appeals and didn't get didn't get what the taxpayer wanted. Now, part of what's issue at issue here was the information that was submitted to the appeals officer uh, through a form 433 a for those who are not familiar with it that's that is essentially a financial statement that the irs requires to analyze and determine whether the taxpayer qualifies for uh you know a settlement alternative, alternative or collection alternative like an installment agreement and ultimately on appeal or, or through the petition, the case raises really raises the question of whether the settlement officer, the, the appeals officer, abused her discretion in reaching a determination that the taxpayer was not eligible for the installment agreement that he was he was seeking. And it's important, you know, we've talked about this a number of times. It's a recurring theme it's important to look through the right prism at the case and, and and understand what is what is the standard of review here and there's kind of two options when a case comes up through this procedural in this procedural posture one is a de novo review a complete, redo, and everything's fair game and the arguments are fair game. And that is an, you know, that's a standard of review that comes up where the taxpayer has made a legitimate argument with respect to the underlying liability itself in the collection due process hearing at the IRS appeals level. That's not the context we find ourselves in in this case. and in, in this case, the substantive liability is not at issue. It's really just a question of, is the taxpayer entitled to you know, the collection alternative here or or more precisely, did the IRS settlement officer abuse her discretion in coming to the conclusion that the taxpayer was, was not entitled to the installment agreement? And so under that standard of review, it really boils down to was the agent's, was the settlement officer's determination arbitrary, capricious or without a sound basis in fact or law? If that sounds like a pretty IRS deferential standard to you, you heard it correct and it is. And so it's a very difficult hurdle to overcome for for a taxpayer, this taxpayer like many others, was not successful in, in overcoming that that uh, hurdle and ultimately the tax court finds here that considering the taxpayer's financial position you know as reflected on that 433a in the financial statement information the, the IRS agent did not did not abuse her discretion by following the IRS Internal Revenue Manual guidelines, refusing to deviate from those on any particular grounds, you know, didn't buy the taxpayers' arguments for why there might have been a, a requirement to deviate from those otherwise kind of standard, uh, standard um, uh, procedures. And therefore, the taxpayer just wasn't able to convince the court That there had been an abuse of discretion here and that he was entitled, you know, to a to a redo or to an installment agreement. I think this case, you know, is like many others that we see in some ways run of the mill, but but also, you know, an important concept and, and an important kind of recurring type of case that we see make its way through the tax court. And one that I think for many taxpayers hits home, you know, especially in this day and age where many taxpayers are economically you know economically struggling and find themselves uncertain of what the future holds it's one of those cases dealing with or 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 underscoring the fact that there are there are collection alternatives out there you do need to jump through all the hoops and take the steps to actually get those in place for many, that means you need a professional to help guide you through those. Um, but, you know, they are available and many taxpayers need to be taking steps again through a professional to kind of get themselves in position uh, to have to have an alternative like an installment agreement in place.
1: And, and Jason, I'll just add, I mean, th- this is almost a very common uh, fact pattern that you and I see in our practice, Um, the 433A showed about $615,000 of assets. And a lot of that actually was uh, equity in their home. And the assets were more than the tax debt. And a lot of times, and even the IRM instructs the the, uh, collection officer to to look at this, um, if if they've got the ability to pay the tax now, then the IRM instructs that for the most part, you need to ask them to pay it. And, and it, it's, to me, it, it's a little bit unfair that the gist of it is the IRS will say, You need to sell your house and give us the equity, and then we can go on our merry way. And, and of course, you know, there are all kinds of issues with that. Um, there are exceptions to that general rule um, under, under the IRM and then under case law, et cetera. But the common ones are if someone's of old age ill health or there's an economic hardship um, you know a lot of times we, we try to hit on the economic hardship uh, issues with the IRS and, and say basically look you you know you're pushing him out of the house but he's still going to have uh, living expenses and there might be facts that suggest that that you know he needs to he or she needs to stay in the house and it's more detrimental to kick them out than it is to have them just go through the forced sale.
0: You're absolutely right. This is a, you know, this is a common or recurring fact pattern and exactly that where taxpayers have a lot of that value that on paper kind of takes them out of the running, but a lot of that value embedded in the house. You know, and it, and it raises another point. This gets a little far afield, but many people aren't aware of the fact that the IRS is kind of the one super creditor out there that generally is is ultimately able to foreclose on a taxpayer's house or residence to uh to make good on a tax liability it's not something that you know they're regularly in the habit of or that they relish doing um but there there is you know you go back to the 80s there's a supreme court case rogers that you know stands for the proposition the IRS has that authority or that that power. And you know, that's kind of part of the background that's I think led to the development of those, you know, the way that they look at this is when on paper the taxpayers got sufficient equity there to satisfy the tax debt, um, well, the IRS looks at it like, well, we we ultimately have the authority to go after that asset, you know, generally. And uh And so it's, it's on the table. And I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people hear that and there's kind of a natural pushback and, and I find many people are not aware of that fact. Um, But, you know, is ultimately generally the law. Now we often find ourselves making, you know, developing arguments and positions as to why they may not be entitled to do so. And sometimes that's, that's part of what you have to do. Even in this context, in the context of an installment agreement to get to you know to address that underlying kind of assumption that makes you know that leads to um, that type of process even being the way that the IRS goes about it and, uh, and and so we often find ourselves having to address the legal more more technical or difficult le- underlying legal issues in order to try to take some of that equity off the table for this you know this type of analysis.
1: Excellent point.
0: Matt you want to take the next case?
1: Yes yeah, so th- this is our next and final one uh Cyril the Commissioner TC Memo 2020-101. Um th- this is kind of a- another common fact scenario that I've seen with clients. Um they have a retirement account and the taxpayer had a retirement account in this instance as well. Um, one of her children was going to college and she was going through a rough time during this tax year at issue. And she wanted to pay for her child's college education. So she tapped the retirement account to the tune of about $50,000 or so to help him uh, start college. The problem with that, of course, is that if it's a traditional type of retirement vehicle, um, that it has not been taxed in the first instance, it's going to get taxed on the distribution. Um, the other problem with it is th- there can be a potential 10%, uh, they call it an addition to tax in the statute, but I like to call it a penalty for taking out uh, a distribution before you're basically of retirement age or disabled. And, and there are exceptions to both of these rules, which is kind of what this case hits upon. Um, the, the, the taxpayer essentially was was trying to just make the basic argument that, that she used the funds for college and, and she did report some of them as taxable, but she was trying to maintain an argument that, well, what she reported as non-taxable should not be taxed. And the court went through a, you know, a rigorous analysis of the rules for retirement accounts, uh, particularly one of the exceptions being, uh, if you roll over your retirement account into another, and you've got sixty days generally to do that, um, but there is an exception if you can show that uh, you missed the sixty-day period, and it would be, but you you put money back into a retirement account, um, and it would be inequitable to tax those those funds. And I'll I'll just add here, she did in fact uh, several years later put the money back in. And I think it was actually after the notice of deficiency was issued to her um in this case, the tax court held that she didn't meet any of uh you know any inequi that would not be inequitable to hold her taxable on the distribution, even though she had altruistic motives in using those funds, and even though they you know she paid it back years later, this is kind of a technical rule designed. Um, uh, and some would say forced to, to ensure people keep their money in retirement and don't touch it. Um, so she ends up getting uh, taxed on the distribution part that she did not fully report. Um, then the court goes and looks at this 10% penalty, and th- this also has different exceptions. Um, one of the exceptions at play here was is if you use the funds for qualified educational expenses um and it, under the tax law it can be for you or a uh, dependent which which in this case that's what it what it was um she ended up winning uh in part on what she could show was actually paid for college expenses she had a, a bit of a substantiation issue um and then some technical issues because her son received pell grants um and i believe some some loans uh uh, from the federal government that were used to pay for college expenses, but the court did to the extent she could show that some of the funds uh, did go to her son, did at least not uh, hit her with the 10% penalty on that part of the uh, the distribution. Um, the IRS also uh, tried to hit her with an accuracy-related penalty, 20% penalty on the tax part of uh, the distribution that was taxable. Um, the court, and I think rightfully so, kind of looked at the circumstances here and and they recognized that she was going through a rough period of time. Uh it it was a, a very messy divorce, if you read between the lines of the opinion. Um, and that, you know, her motives, even though it's not technically supposed to come into play, I think did come into play here. She was trying to sit there and pay for her uh her son's college expenses and that she did Um, She did report the distribution on the return. It's just that she didn't report the taxable amount. So the court ends up saying, no, IRS, we're not gonna allow you to impose the accuracy related penalty. And there's an interesting footnote in here, Jason, and we've we've talked about 6751 ad nauseum because it almost seems to to be a recurring theme in the tax court. Um, and, And for those that aren't familiar, when the IRS imposes certain penalties, uh, they have to get written managerial approval of the penalty prior to communicating it to the taxpayer. Um, in this case, the IRS uh, was making an interesting argument. There, there's a case that came out last year called Walquist, which basically said that uh, the IRS does not need to get written managerial approval on certain computer generated um, notices that go out to taxpayers. And that's because there's a special exception under 6751B that deals with uh, a- electronically generated, I think is the term it uses in the statute. Um, the, in this case, the the uh, penalty or the first penalty notice that went to the taxpayer was under the IRS's AUR procedures, which are the automated underreporter procedures, um, which essentially look at what information does the IRS have from, uh, in this case, the retirement fund that made the distribution, they compare it to the tax return. Uh, In any event, the IRS was trying to say that uh, the the penalty communication for the accuracy-related penalty, uh, the IRS does not need to comply with 6751B because it's automatically generated. Uh, And particularly because they were asserting a substantial understatement penalty, not negligence. Um, The court kind of punted on this issue and said, well, we're not going to find her uh, responsible for the penalty in the first place. So we're we're not going to look at that issue. But it does kind of allow you to see uh, that the IRS probably will be making similar arguments uh, later on down the line.
0: Interesting. Well, Matt... Very interesting take and, and insight. Anything else to add on these cases?
1: I think that's it.
0: Well, man, I want to thank you as always for, for taking the time out and, uh, and, and providing your insights on this. We will, looks like we've got a few interesting ones coming up here soon. And so I suspect there will be a few additional podcasts over the next, next couple of weeks. Um, Want to thank everybody for joining us again today. Again this is the Freeman Law Project. Matthew Roberts and Jason Freeman signing off. We hope
1: to join us again next time. And so
0: therefore, the deduction fails, and what follows is penalties and and whatnot, but ultimately provides that after a judicial extinguishment, to have such a requirement where there are things outside of the taxpayers or the donee organizations control that, and this is outside of the conservation easement context, it generally requires that a taxpayer seeking a charitable deduction have donated all of the interest or an entire interest in the property that's donated. But there's a special exception for what are known as qualified conservation contributions. And this is a carve out that Congress, let's, let's recognize Congress specifically allowed for to incentivize contributions of conservation easement rights. The, The regulations dealing with these donations of conservation easements required that in order to be a qualified conservation contribution, the conservation purpose behind the easement has to be quote unquote protected in perpetuity. So this is the perpetuity uh, protection right that has has to be embedded or part and parcel of the uh, of the contribution. Now the regulations also recognize that it may not be realistic where to have such a requirement where there are things outside of the taxpayers or the donee organizations control that may result in a, you know, in relinquishment or extinguishment of the conservation easement. And that's where the regulations deep down in the, you know, in the annals of the the treasury regulations that deal with conservation easements, that's where there is a provision That deals with extinguishment due to judicial proceedings. And importantly, that carries some language requiring to the T that in that instance, the charitable donee, following a forced judicial sale, has to receive their proportionate share of the proceeds and then be required to use those proceeds in a manner consistent with the original gift. And so again, they've got to receive their proportionate share of the fair market value of, uh, of the easement or the property interest at the time that the judicial sale is, is fu- forced and, and happens. Well, going back to the actual deeds in this case, and and the same deed again in all of the cases that were issued this past week the, the same language was set out in each of the each of the respective deeds but the deed here follows provides that after a judicial extinguishment the the proceeds paragraph of the deed would control what is What the grantee organization is entitled to from those from those future proceeds. And it it curiously provides here that they would basically be entitled to their share of the fair market value of the unencumbered conservation easement, minus, and this is a parenthetical that really that really dooms their entire case, minus any increase in the value after the date that the easement was granted that is attributable to improvements. So for example, improvements that may be made by Englewood uh, or or the grantor. And so ultimately here, the tax court finds that because of this language, because of this scaling back, of what the donee organization would be entitled to, it runs afoul of the protected and perpetuity provision of the conservation easement regulations that are set out by the US Treasury Department and, and the IRS. And so therefore, the deduction fails and what follows is penalties and, and whatnot. But ultimately, the the conservation easement deduction fails, and like dominoes, the the court churned out several additional uh, opinions that just knocked over these these charitable deductions that were taken by taxpayers. And so, Matt, it's you know, you and I are seeing this in practice, seeing the IRS, you know, really pushing back in this area. Uh, you know, it, it, at some point. In some cases, they, they push back too far. It's kind of the, the knee-jerk reaction. And, and at some point, the pushback hits into, you know, territory where perhaps they shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be pushing back. But right now, you know, this is what we're seeing, the IRS challenging these across the board. And here of late, at least, they have certainly had some success in the in the tax court. What we are seeing, you know, with that success, is it, it the cases have virtually all been about technical requirements under the regs and language in deeds and whether or not these are satisfied. Not so much questions of appraisals with respect to the, you know, the valuation of the deductions and, you know, I, at, at least with what we're seeing, that that appears to be kind of the continuing trend. Uh, from these
1: tax court cases addressing this, and, and Jason, I'll I'll just add I think the government's message is, is getting out uh, the message that they that they at least want to to kind of start getting out there. I've actually been on calls with people that have asked me, well, or are, are cons- can we even do conservation easements and take deductions for it? And the answer, of course, is yes. There those are permissible. There's a specific code, and there are regs that allow you to do it, provided that you meet all these technicalities, et cetera, that the government is going after. Um, It makes it interesting because these are even more opinions that the government's probably going to use to kind of push taxpayers who have pending cases in the tax court to fall under this new uh, settlement program that that the government has said they will only keep open for a limited amount of time. Um, I think it just makes it that much more important um, for those taxpayers that do receive these settlement letters or potential settlement letters, and that may have the option to do it, to really get a, a thorough scrub by by a tax professional to make sure these technicalities have been met, where are the weaknesses? Where are the strengths in your case? To kind of figure out, it, you know, is it worth it to, to sit there and go ahead and take the government's offer? Would you agree?
0: I absolutely agree. And Matt, you know, this is one of those very technical issues where, you know, as a, as a taxpayer or as a professional, you know, that is, that is involved, you've got to have a, you know, you've got to have an attorney with an eye that knows what they're doing in the conservation easement realm, because these, these regulations, I mean, as you can see, like we're, we're diving down in a, you know, 20, 30 page opinion, that is basically about one provision embedded in the regulations, you know, in this case, dealing with the perpetuity requirement. There are, it's just a very, you know, it's it's a very nuanced area. And uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, those letters, it appears, are going out now. Taxpayers are going to be kind of under pressure. And, you know, another point, you know, another point I would make here, I guess, is with these cases that are that are coming out, and, and they have been a, a bad line of cases, which always set precedent or at least the appearance of precedent. Um it, it it's interesting the way, you know, I think a lot of listeners may not realize the way the government goes about strategically building its line of precedent. You know, as the government, you look at any given case. And you recognize that this case, hey, this case has the potential to have ramifications across the entire system. And if I, as the government administrating these cases, if I pick and choose those those cases with the worst facts and line those cases up initially to get that line of precedent going and kind of get that trend or the wind at my back in these cases, I'll, I'll not only set helpful precedent that I can use to influence courts, you know, and decision makers in the future or taxpayers who are.